can be seated. Our sermon this morning is taken from 1 Kings chapter 1. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter. I do warn you in advance, it is a long chapter, but uh, at least we're, we completed the first five verses last week, so that's a mercy in one sense. And now we will get to enjoy the remainder until verse 53. As you know, 1 Kings starts where 2 Samuel ends. First and Second Samuel take us through the lives of Saul and then David the king, the great king who set the standard for all the kings who would follow after him. But now as we, we take up the story in First Kings, David is dying. He is about to pass away to go the way of all flesh. And a successor will have to follow him upon the throne of the United Kingdom. Who will it be? Will it be the man that, uh, that God intended, or will it be a usurper, one of his other sons who decided that he wanted to be king? We'll see in this chapter that the Lord's way will, will come to pass uh, in this. We'll see also the importance of keeping our vows. There's much to be uh, learned for this day and age within uh, First Kings and indeed throughout all of Scripture. And we'll be listen. But uh, before we turn our attention to the Word of God, let's go to the God of the Word and let's uh, ask for His help. Gracious God, as we read Your Word, we pray, O Lord, that You would open our eyes, that You would illuminate us inwardly so that we might understand. Lord, an unregenerate man can read Your Word again and again and have an understanding of what the words mean, but have no understanding whatsoever of what the words point him to. Your son, Jesus, when he was here on earth, told uh, his Jewish brethren that they searched the scriptures trying to find life in them, but they failed to find it because they didn't see him. They didn't understand that all the scriptures point to him. I pray, therefore, that you would help us to see that. As we see the failings of mortal kings, help us to remember that we need that more than mortal king. We need the God-man, Jesus Christ, to reign over us. Now, Lord, please help me to open up your word. I am a, I'm a vessel of clay, but I know you can use even the humblest of vessels for the most honorable of work. And I pray you would this day. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. First Kings 1, and as I said, I'll be reading verses 5 through 53. This is the word of the Lord. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the stone of Zechuleth, which is by Enrogel. He also invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Come, please, let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your, sons, uh, your son Solomon. 
go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Then, while you are still talking there with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went into the chamber of the king. Now the king was very old, and Adbishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. Then the king said, What is your wish? Then she said to him, My lord, you swore by your, the, God, the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king, and now, my lord the king, you do not know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after them. Otherwise it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders." And just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. So they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today, and has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him, and they say, Long live King Adonijah! But he has not invited me, me your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king, and you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, Let my lord King David live forever. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. The king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel, and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon! Then you shall come up after him. And he shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen! May the Lord God of my lord the king say so too. As the Lord has been with my lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon, and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord king David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the horn. And all the people said, Long live King Solomon! 
And all the people went up after him, and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, Why is the city in such a noisy uproar? While he was still speaking there, came Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest. And Adonijah said to him, Come in, for you are a prominent man, and, and bring good news. Then Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, No, our lord king David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from their rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. And Solomon also sits on the throne of the kingdom, and moreover the king's servants have gone to bless our lord king David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name. And may he make his throne greater than your throne. Then the king bowed himself on the bed. Also the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day, while my eyes see it. So all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose, and each one went his way. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Have you ever, I wonder, have you ever thought about how important, not, not just contracts, but verbal oaths and vows really are? How important they are to us, how much we depend upon them day to day, how they knit us together in so many different ways, and how a breach of them... It's such a, a grave sin. Think about the vows that we take in a lifetime that are simply spoken out loud rather than putting our name down and having witnesses and, and people registering our words and things like that. The vows, for instance, we take at marriage. We stand before witnesses and we plight our troth to one another. And we vow that we will honor and obey, that we will love and cherish till death do we part, and so on. And we say these words out loud. Or when we join the military and we raise our right hands and we take an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Or when we give our testimony in court and we swear with our hand upon Scripture to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Or the vows that happen more often, hopefully more often than we give testimony in court. The vows, for instance, that happen when children are baptized. Do you remember at that moment that parents take vows to raise up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And not only that, but the congregation then also takes vows, don't you? You take a vow to help those parents in the nurture and admonition of those kids and to set a good example for the children who are being raised in this congregation. Or the vows that we take when we are ordained, when we enter into the eldership, 
or the diaconate, or when we become pastors, we take grave vows, once again before witnesses, that we will uphold that office. At those moments in time, we're not writing down our names on a contract or anything like that. What we are doing, though, is we're calling God to witness that we are giving our word. We are saying, these are the things that I will do, so help me God. And then people depend upon us to keep those vows. They view them as very important. They bind us together in some cases. Now, I mentioned this because in verse one, uh, 13, rather, chapter 1, we learn of a very important vow that David made to Bathsheba. In verse 13, we read that he said at some point, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. The question, though, as this chapter opens up, is will David keep that vow? Because at the point in time that these verses begin, if he doesn't keep that vow, it's going to result in death. Death for Bathsheba, death for Solomon, probably, as a new regime comes in and the one that wants to replace David is swept away. And why is that? Well, it's going to happen because a different son, Adonijah, is attempting to fill the power vacuum that's being caused within Judah because of David's decline. What does Adonijah want? He wants, obviously, to be the king. He feels that he has a right to follow after David. Adonijah is David's fourth son. He is, as the text tells us, the son of Haggith. And all of the sons who were born before him are deceased or have disappeared, presumably deceased. Amnon, David's firstborn, he was slain by his brother Absalom. We remember Absalom, he famously rebelled against his father, started a civil war, and was in turn put to death by Joab and his men. There is another son, a third son, Chiliab. He's only mentioned as being born, but we learn nothing more about him. It's very likely that he died either in infancy or youth. So Adonijah, being fourth in line, thinks he is the rightful heir. He's old enough. He's 35 years old. Uh, but at this point in time, we need to remember that the succession was not based yet on what is called primogeniture. Now, what does that word mean? Well, the word means simply that the oldest son gets the job. Okay? After, after dad dies, it's the oldest son who will be next in line to take up this particular grave calling. But at this point in time, actually, it's God who decides. We remember that it was not Jonathan, Saul's oldest son, who God appointed to be king after Saul. He appointed David from an entirely different tribe, a different house. It was his decision. And the Lord ultimately is going to have the say over who follows who. Now, in trying to become king, Adonijah follows the same plan his brother Absalom had followed in his attempt to seize power. He's very savvy politically. We can see some of the things that he does. First, he uh, gets for himself horsemen and bodyguards. Horsemen were very rare in Israel at this point in time. So he gets horsemen to show his wealth and his status and to make him something in the city of Jerusalem where, where all the power was really concentrated. He also gets these 50 men to run before him. What does that mean? Well, those were bodyguards. They were like the secret service agents that he had hired. And they kind of showed, I'm going to be next. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the important guy. I'm the one who needs to be protected here. We also note that he is good looking. He's photogenic. He's a celebrity. 
And he has that, that appeal to the people. And like Absalom, unfortunately, he is also spoiled rotten. His father didn't rebuke him. Now, while David is lifted up before us throughout the book of 1 Kings again and again, we're going to be seeing the heart of David memorialized. The fact was David loved the Lord. He did not always serve him perfectly, but he loved him and the Lord loved David. But unfortunately, one of the things that David did was he spoiled his children, his sons in particular. He did not rebuke them when they deserved a rebuke. And his own son, Solomon, in writing the Proverbs, possibly thinking back over his own brothers, would write down advice to us that I hope we will take to, to hand. You remember Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And other things like do not hold, uh, withhold correction from a child, Proverbs 23, 13, our children need instruction. They need to be chastened at times, rebuked. Otherwise, they will get into sinful paths. And unfortunately, Adonijah was not stopped from walking in those sinful pathways. And it has led him to a position here where he is in danger of doing something extremely sinful. But he has, as I said, he's, he's gathered political support to himself. He's got Joab, David's great general throughout most of his wars, on his side. So he has the support, presumably, of a large portion of the military. He also has Abiathar, the high priest. Now, that would bring much of the religious support behind him as well. So he seems to have those two pillars to, to support his candidacy. Why was it, though, that so many of David's old friends like Joab and Adonijah were supporting the men that they knew were not the king's choice. Why were they supporting Adonijah? And the answer is because they felt slighted by David in some way. Joab felt very slighted by him because uh, at various times David had tried to replace Joab, his relative in that position over the army. He'd put in his place Abner and Amasa. And Joab had been so disgusted with that that he had murdered both of them. And then finally, he had put Benaiah in the place that Joab thought was his own. And Benaiah was a young man who was able to hold on to it. Uh, so Joab was very upset about that. And then Abiathar, Abiathar had been made joint priest with Zadok. And there seems to be in, uh, an indication that David favored Zadok, even though they were both priests who carried the ark before him. Now, what's going on? David, obviously, he is dying. He has become addled, and he is not getting situation reports, we should say, about what's going on in the kingdom. His own health and his own fading life are really the only things that, that interest him at this point in time. His world is beginning to shrink to his bedroom. That happens to all of us at some point. He can no longer be concerned with the matters of state, there comes a time, brothers, remember this, when our capacities are no longer able to take up the, the things of great power and leadership in the church and in the government and sometimes even in the family, when we become incapable simply of fulfilling that role. And I have seen many, many times men who have not realized they've reached that stage where they're no longer able to do these things. I know that day will come. 
Sometimes I wake up on a Sunday and fear it's already arrived when I, I will not be able to stand up and where when I speak, I will actually be undoing any good work that I did in the past. That day comes. And that's why you need people around you to tell you the day has arrived. And maybe to hit you with you know, a rolling pin and say, hey, dummy, you're, you're too old. Okay, it's time to let the next generation come in. That day has to happen. So that's a warning to all of us that we are mortal and we are all headed towards that, that day when we will no longer be able to fulfill roles like that. David has reached that point. He, a mortal man, is fading away. But while he is not aware of what's going on, a group of trusted men who have been excised from the, the coming administration that Adonijah dreams of, men like Zadok, Benaiah, Jehoiada, and Nathan, they all know what is going on. And they now want to inform the king. Adonijah has felt that the time was right to seize the reins of power. So what's he done? He's held this feast uh, slash religious ceremony. And he's gathered all of his supporters in one place. Uh, he's meeting at the, the water supply southwest of uh, the Davidic Jebusite city of Jerusalem, the capital of David. And they are eating and drinking and feasting. They're already having their victory meal when they haven't yet secured the power. That's, that's a mistake that he made. Uh, but it shows this is, this is clearly a coup. He invites all of the king's sons except for Solomon, who would have been the successor, and those who would serve, obviously, in Solomon's administration. So he is attempting to seize power without having gotten a word from God saying, I want you to be the successor instead of the man that David wants to put on the throne, Solomon. So Nathan goes, he tells Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and then Bathsheba goes in to speak to the king. Now, this must have been a very difficult experience. You remember she was the wife that, uh, that David uh, was willing to to almost destroy himself and his entire nation for. He had, you remember, put her husband Uriah to death at the hands of Joab. And now she has to go in and see there's Abishag, the Shunammite, although they, the king has not known her. She's the one who is ministering to him in his old age. And we remember that as we read the Bible, polygamy is never something that works out. The natural jealousy of the human heart when you have others who are competing for your loved one's attention. It should be one man, one woman for life. When we bring other people into that, and naturally jealousy erupts. So this must have been a difficult interview. She goes in, there's David, there's Abishag, and she bows down before her, him and she tells him what's going on. She says, you remember, you said to me that my son Solomon would reign on your throne, but that's not what's happening. And then Nathan comes in to confirm her witness. That, and what he's doing is he is uh, he's fulfilling that role uh, that the Lord had wisely instituted. That you, it wasn't just your word that would be taken. It had to be by the mouth of two or three witnesses that a matter was established. And so Nathan comes in to say, no, she's not trying a coup to, to put Solomon in power prematurely. No, this really is going on. Now, one of the things I want you to see here is Nathan, I mean, God bless Nathan the prophet. He was a man who was willing to tell the truth even when it was dangerous again and again. You remember, this is the man who went into the presence of David the king and had the boldness 
to tell him this story about a rich man who had lots of sheep, but instead had taken the beloved only sheep of another man when he wanted to feed somebody who had come to visit him. And David had been outraged. Oh, such a man should not live. And he pointed to him and he said in front of the entire court, you are that man for what he had done to Uriah and stealing Bathsheba from him. And David could have said, and you are that dead man, and had him dragged out and put to death. But the Lord convicted David's heart, and he repented. And he made Nathan a trusted advisor, the prophet of the Lord who spoke the truth to him. I want you to remember this. Surround yourself with people who tell you the hard truths because they love you rather than flatterers who tell you what you want to hear about yourself all the time, who lie to you and thus set you on the wrong path. Nathan was a man who loved God enough to be willing to tell the king the truth and how we need men like that today. We need men with a prophetic spirit in this land who are willing to declare the truth even when it is hard, who aren't afraid of being canceled in the current culture who are willing to speak real truth, God's truth, to power. Now, David had been told by Nathan that he would not build the temple, which also must have been a crushing blow to him. This house that he wanted to build for the Lord in the midst of Jerusalem, Nathan had said, it's not going to happen during your lifetime. I'm sorry, David. But your son will build it. And he had also said in, in 2 Samuel 7, In verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So the Lord had told David through Nathan, a son's coming who's going to follow you. Don't worry, he will succeed you on the throne. In the midst of that great promise that there would always be one who would sit on his throne, uh, a promise that could only be fulfilled by the eternal king our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was descended from David, son of man and son of God at the same time. But he said that the one who would reign after him was not yet. He had not yet been born. He would be from the seed of his body and he would establish his kingdom. Well, when Nathan had spoken those words, Adonijah was already born. And so therefore it could not have been a prophecy referring to Adonijah. It was the Lord saying that the one who would reign on his throne, Solomon, was yet coming. Nathan will later uh, write books, incidentally, dealing with David and Solomon. They'll be mentioned in First and Second Chronicles. But Bathsheba and Nathan now come and they, they try to persuade David. I know you're old, but the time is urgent. We really need to, we need to stop what's going on. We need to, to end this coup immediately. Now, they're not suggesting the immediate abdication of David, only the appointment of Solomon as a co-regent to reign until David's death, at which point he would be coronated and take, uh, take on the role of king officially. Nathan is a man who loves the Lord, and he is an astute planner. He, he did this at great personal risk, but he wants to make sure that the right man succeeds David on the throne because he loves God and he loves his people, and they knew it was Solomon. So we need to be men like that as well, who are willing to do the hard things, to say the hard things, to be like Paul, who said that he had not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. One of my desires when I come before you every Sunday is 
And this is my greatest desire, that everything that I would say would be directly from the word of God to you. That's the only way I can do you any good. But that I would not shun to open up the whole counsel to you. That I wouldn't hold back anything that was profitable to you. So therefore, that I would say the words that you need to hear, even if you don't want to hear them. Because often what we, and I've said this before, what we need to hear is not what we want to hear. But I hope that, that it will do you good because it comes from God. Now, David has been reminded of his oath. Will he keep it? And happily, the king who had written in the Psalms, I will pay my vows to the Lord, does indeed keep his vow. And the entire apparatus of state springs into action as soon as he says it must. And so Solomon first, he's mounted on the king's mule. I don't know if you're like me, you're like a mule. The king rode a mule, but apparently mules were an incredibly rare animal. Um, the Jews were actually forbidden uh, to interbreed donkeys with horses. They could only breed after their own kind. So normally everybody in Judah uh, and, and uh, in the northern areas, they would only ride donkeys. A mule was a highly expensive imported animal, and that's what the, uh, that's what the king rode. And so they put them... Uh, they put him, that is Solomon, on David's mule. And then servants run before him. And then not only do you have the servants crying out, Solomon the king is coming, but you also have the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Who were they? The Cherethites and the Pelethites. They were actually foreign mercenaries who had been with David since the time when he was fighting in the Civil War. The odd thing is these were actually uh, Greeks, Cretans and Phoenicians and Philistines, believe it or not, who had thrown in their lot with David and had become his, his men. Now, they're very important because, they're, uh, because they weren't Jews. They weren't uh, subject to as many of the palace intrigues. They were kind of like uh, the Praetorian guards. After a while, the emperors began to favor taking in Germans, not only because they were tall and imposing and Germanic, but also because uh, they were more difficult to bribe. They didn't have the, the links with the Roman society that everybody else did. They depended entirely upon the emperor. So these were men who depended entirely upon the king. Benaiah, you remember, is very happy to hear this. And he prays something interesting. I, I, I don't know if you saw it. I hope you did. He prayed that Solomon would be greater than David. He prayed that Solomon's kingdom would be larger than David's. And the interesting thing is, we don't read, and David was very offended. How dare you? My son shouldn't be greater than I am. But no, David wanted his son to be greater than he was. He wanted his son's kingdom to be more extensive. And that should be our desire as parents, shouldn't it? We would want our, king, our kids to excel us in everything, especially piety. I really want my, I want my kids to be holier than I am. I want them to love the Lord more than I do. Matthew Henry wrote these words. They're actually in your, uh, your folder if you want to read them. He said, note, it is a great satisfaction to good men when they are going out of the world to see the affairs of their family in a good posture. Their children rising up in their stead to serve God and their generation, and especially to see peace upon Israel and the establishment of it. It would do my heart good if, as I was dying, I knew that my sons were going to continue walking with the Lord, that the web house would continue to serve God. I, I, you know, I want them to be successful. They continue on in the military. I'd, I'd love them to be generals one day or something like that, maybe or maybe a command sergeant major of the U.S. Army, be even more imposing than a, a general. 
So uh, certainly he seems to scare the enlisted people more than generals do, but in any event. But that's not what I want really for them. I, what I want is to see them more pious, more holy, more godly, more grateful to their, their God and Savior than I ever was. That would, be, that would be a great blessing to me. But anyway, Solomon goes to be anointed. He is anointed with oil. It's poured from a horn upon his head, the sacred olive oil that was uh, uh, compounded by Moses. The formula was set down, and it's poured on his head. What is this oil pouring indicating? It's not just so his hair will be shiny. He is anointed with oil. It's a sign of God's blessing and the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit being poured out upon him. In fact, the interesting thing is it's from this word anointed as the king was being anointed that we get the word Messiah. It comes from the Hebrew Meshach. And it points to the idea this is the man that God has chosen for his people. This is the man whom God is blessing. And so we have this imparting of the Holy Spirit to, uh, to, to um, Solomon symbolically given. And it points forward, of course, doesn't it, to the anointing of Jesus Christ that would come much later. You remember there was that day at the Jordan that John the Baptist was very surprised to see Christ coming to him to be baptized. And so they went down to the Jordan after, after John's uh, hesitations had been, had been cast aside. And he anointed Christ for his ministry. It's one of the reasons why I believe pouring is the right sign uh, it was pointing forward to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon him. I don't believe he was immersed into the Holy Spirit. I believe it was, it was poured upon him at that point in time. And so he was set apart to rule over God's household. And that not for a time, but forever, to be the great anointed king. And it wasn't, of course, the, the oil that was poured out upon him only. We actually saw in that moment the Holy Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove. Christ had the reality that was uh, only prefigured in the anointing of Solomon. But Solomon is anointed. They blow these ram's horns, the shofar, and then the guys who are feasting ask, what is the uproar? Why, why is there all this commotion within the city? And then they learn the truth. Solomon has been appointed king by David. Their plans have fallen apart. And even before his administration begins, it begins to fade away. Everybody begins to run back to their own household. They know the people are celebrating. The city is full of cheering. They will not accept Adonijah now as king. But how fickle the followers of Adonijah were. They were willing to abandon him as in a moment and run for the hills as soon as the winds shifted. And unfortunately, that's the way that men, mere men work. They, they follow the, the way of the world. They shift in one direction and the other. Christians, you shouldn't be like that. If somebody is following the Lord, follow them. Even if the entire world is against them, follow the ones who follow the Lord and who are true to his word. So Adonijah at this point is terrified. And he rushes to the sacred tent. The temple hadn't yet been built yet on Mount Zion. And he takes hold of the altar. He, he grabs the horns. The horns were just these wooden projections out of the side of the altar. They, actually, that's where they used to tie the sacrifice while it was being sacrificed so it couldn't get away. And he grips them. It was the, the sign for sanctuary. Normally, the, that only applied to people who were guilty of manslaughter. But uh, he's hoping 
that the mercy of Solomon will, will come upon him nonetheless. And Solomon does show mercy. It is one of the qualities of God's people that, that we are quick to show mercy to those who don't necessarily deserve it. But Solomon doesn't show an unqualified mercy, does he? He says if he's a good man, he'll survive. But if he continues with his plotting, obviously, that'll be the end of him. He can't have a traitor in the midst of his kingdom. Now, I, I want to make a, just a few applications of this first. And this is an obvious one. I've already kind of touched upon it, but I, I do want to emphasize it uh, because it's one of the central themes here. It's the important of vow, uh, importance of vows. Now, we live in a time where vows are treated very, very lightly, don't we? I have, you know, I can't number the, the, the number of times where I've been talking uh, to people in the midst of marriage counseling and they um, have either committed adultery or they are contemplating divorce uh, and you know I, I will I will because I should I will remind them of the vows that they took in the presence of many witnesses that they would love honor and obey this person till death do they part that this was a one flesh relationship that they were entering into and that they were doing so with eyes open and they would, they would keep that. And they looked at me like I was simple-minded. Well, you didn't expect me to actually keep that, did you? I mean, till death do we part? <laughs> Who believes that anymore? Well, but brothers and sisters, you should never swear a vow before God that you don't actually mean. And think, think about it. I mean, the bizarre thing is we all take, or increasingly we take our own vows very unseriously. But we expect everybody else to take their vows very seriously, don't we? I mean, if you were in court and a fellow comes in and he puts his hand on the Bible and he swears to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and then he stands up and he purges himself from noon till six o'clock saying all sorts of lies and horrific things about you, how would you feel about that? Well, nobody expects people to take vows these days very seriously. So I guess it's okay that he lied about me, and I'm going to jail now. <laughs> Great. Or your spouse. How do you expect them to take those marriage vows? Kind of, well, honey, you know, kind of, uh, we interpret them differently. Would you be happy about that? I mean, honestly, to know that your wife or husband was translating the vows very, very differently, very very loosely. And nobody takes them seriously, do they? Or what about me? I took ordination vows. What if I were to suddenly, you know, I, I vowed that I believed in the Lord God, that I accepted the doctrines of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, that I would, I would maintain the government and discipline, that I would, uh, you know, love you and serve you. What if I just woke up one morning and said, well, you know, nobody takes those things seriously. Would you be happy with a pastor who was acting like that? I dare say you would not, and you should not. So think about that. We depend upon other people to keep their word. And if we all become covenant breakers, if we all follow in that direction, what will become of us? What kind of a fighting, snarling dog pack of distrustful, hateful people would we descend to very quickly? If we couldn't trust anybody and their word, what would happen? Now, it is a, a great satisfaction of heart to see good men 
keeping their vows, therefore, and good women keeping their vows, doing what they have promised to do in their family, in the government, in the jobs that they have been given. And those are the people we should honor and respect, and we should be striving to raise up our kids to do that. But in order to do that, we mustn't simply say to them, keep your vows. What do we need to do? We need to keep our vows, right? It's not always a rhetorical question, incidentally. You can, you can actually answer. We are Presbyterians, but you know, once in a while an amen or a, an answer is, is okay. Just don't clap, all right? That's, that's all. Anyway. Yeah. But <clears throat> we also depend for more than just our social stability on vows, don't we? I want to put it to you that we depend for everything for our eternal good upon verbal vows. You and I, brothers and sisters. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord said, vowing, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, promising that the seed of the woman would come who would crush the head of the serpent who was the devil. And then in Genesis 9:11, how's this for another promise that we depend upon? Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. What if God said, just kidding? <laughs> We'd be gone in a moment. What about the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that the Lord has made to his people? He would never leave us in the lurch. Or Christ's promise before he departed. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I have to tell you, when I am dying, it's not going to be words about my 403B and how much money I put away. Or anything like that that will be of comfort to me. Those words will be of comfort to me. If it were not so, I would have told you that Christ, my Savior, would never lie to me, that there was a place prepared for me, that he had opened up the gates of heaven for me, and that the even more important, because when I get to heaven, what will be my only dependence? When I get there, what would I be able to plead? I only have filthy rags of my own attempts at righteousness. If I am to stand before a holy God and be received into heaven, what do I need? I need Christ. I need his righteousness. I need him in that moment to intercede for me and to say, this one is mine. To put it in the, 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 the crassest vernacular, he's with me. And in Luke 12, 8 and 9, Jesus said, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before him, men, him, the son of man, also will confess before the angels of God. I depend upon that. I depend that on the last day when I go and stand before my maker, my savior Jesus will confess my name, not based upon my infinite worth, my goodness, or just what a great guy I am. I depend that he will do that for me, a poor wretched sinner that he saved by his blood because he said he will. Again and again and again. I depend upon those verbal promises from the one who always keeps his promises. The one in whom all the promises of God are yea and amen. And I trust you do too. 
So if we have so mighty a Savior, so faithful a covenant keeper, should we not be striving to be like him here on earth? Men and women of our word. What kind of father would we be if we say you must follow after Christ, the one who always keeps his promises and we never keep ours? Brothers and sisters, it should be our delight to keep our vows even when it's hard to do so because we know that our life depends upon vow keeping and our eternal welfare. Let's go before the one who has vowed to save all of his own to the uttermost. God, our Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you have made precious vows and oaths. While we, O oh Lord, have never kept any of our promises perfectly, you do. And we are so thankful for that. Help us then to be men of our word, to not forswear ourselves, to not take these things lightly, and when we do vow before you calling other witnesses to account, help us to bring these things to mind. Help us to remember what we have said we will do. And to remember the goodness of the one who said he will do all for us. Thank you, Lord, that when we had no hope, you were the one who came and saved us. When we were yet enemies and rebels, you delivered us. And I pray that if there's anyone here who has not yet closed with you, who is not yet depending upon you, who is yet foolishly depending upon their own strength, their own ability, I pray, Lord, this would be the day that they stop, they give up, that they flee to you, that they throw themselves on your mercy and know that it comes wonderfully, it comes freely, it comes graciously and unconditionally from you. Oh, Lord, help them to change as only you